All right, our text for this morning is going to be Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and I'm going to start in verse 25 in Luke 10. What is about to happen is, is a lawyer is going to approach Jesus with a question. Now, as a lawyer, this is a guy who was regarded as being an expert in the law of Moses. This guy had a PhD in the law of Moses. He knew the law frontwards to backwards. But he has a question for Jesus. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, says, And a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. And if you will do this, then you will live. Well, the question that he asked Jesus here was a very routine conversation in this time. Um, in fact, just a few chapters later, we're going to read about the rich young ruler really asking Jesus this exact same question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Yet there's a difference between the way that this lawyer asked Jesus this question and the way that the rich young ruler asked Jesus this more or less same exact question. And that is, notice in the text how it says he wanted to put Jesus to the test as he asked him this question. Now, we would identify this as what we would call a loaded question. Loaded questions have this very sinister, underhanded meaning behind it. Loaded questions are almost always laced with inflammatory assumptions about the other person, where the intent is to get this emotional response out of the individual who you're asking this question to. Maybe get them to slip in a public setting and to say something that is self-incriminating. This is precisely what this lawyer wants as he asks Jesus this question. Well, maybe you have experienced being asked a load of questions before at work, perhaps. Had a supervisor, had a coworker who would ask you razor-sharp questions that was specifically in a public setting. What that person is trying to do is to bring you down. They, they are trying to knock you down and to destroy your reputation. Well, this lawyer makes it look like he wants to be taught by Jesus. But what we need to know is when he says, teacher, this is, this is not sincere. This is a more sarcastic teacher. I have a question for you. But this is really a trap where no matter what Jesus says in his mind as the lawyer, he wants a guillotine to come crashing down on Jesus' neck so he can yell, gotcha, and then correct him in front of all of these people. You know, another example of this that immediately jumps out to mind is in John's Gospel, where we see, I, um, I believe on this occasion it is scribes and Pharisees, maybe just exclusively Pharisees, who have a woman who they have just caught in the very act of adultery, right? And so they bring this woman there before Jesus, and they ask him a, an extremely loaded question. Teacher, now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women as this. And yet, what do you say about that, Jesus? Should we stone this woman? 
And really the reason why this is a loaded question, I mean, loaded questions are just like loaded guns. It's a very, very hazardous thing, a dangerous thing, where the person who is asking a loaded question tries to strong-arm you into either answering yes or no when it is not a yes or no answer. Now, if Jesus says, yes, let's stone this woman, guess what? Jesus is instantaneously in trouble with Rome because Rome reserved the right for capital punishment. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, let's not stone this woman, he's instantaneously in trouble with the Jews because they can now accuse him that he is going against the law of Moses by going against what Moses had commanded us. And so they want Jesus to say yes or they want him to say no. Either way, that guillotine is going to come crashing down on Jesus. He does not say yes. He does not say no. He doesn't even speak at first. But he does something very strange where he gets down on the ground and he starts scribbling into the dirt with his finger. And all these guys are just looking at each other like, what's he doing? And then they start grilling Jesus. Hey, you're not answering our question, Jesus. In the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to actually stone that woman. What should we do, Jesus? And at last, Jesus stands up, looks them all dead in the eye, and he says, the one among you who has never sinned the day in his life, I invite him to, to walk up here right now and to stone this woman to death. Really, the way Jesus answers loaded questions is just brilliant, so creative. And now, as they are now confronted with the way that Jesus has now responded, these guys are silenced now. They walk away humbled. They walk away exposed and defeated. Now, on this occasion, as this lawyer asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice how Jesus answers his question with a question. Again, very brilliant. He makes him do the talking. He makes him answer his own question. What is written in the law? How does that read to you, he says? And then the lawyer responds with the prayer Jews prayed every single morning and night. It's called the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with, notice, all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. But he also includes Leviticus, chapter 19, which says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, if his question was not underhanded, this would have been, this would have been the end of the whole thing. And yet this lawyer is not through with Jesus, is he? He's got an even more loaded question for Jesus in response that he's about to hit him with. He wants to win a debate with Jesus in front of a crowd of people. And I can almost see this wolfish smile formulating on his face as he then asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? Now, in Leviticus, the, the Hebrew word that is used for neighbor is translated as friend, as fellow citizen, and as a dear companion. But the trouble was, if you went up to lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes, and you asked them, who is my neighbor? The answer that always would have come is that our neighbors are those who look like us. Our neighbors are those who talk like us. 
Neighbors are those who only dress the way that we do and worship God exactly the way that we do. And people who have our, our skin pigmentation and our ethnicity, those are our neighbors. What is the dirty implication there? Is that anybody who does not look just like us, who does not worship exactly precisely the way that we do, who does not have our ethnicity, then those are not our neighbors, those are others. Those are enemies. Those are its. You see, they, their, their understanding of the word neighbor was very much black and white. If you're not one of us, then you're one of them. And they have made hating enemies as much a, really as much of a virtue as loving their own neighbor. And so this has been going on for a long time. And yet one day a man named Jesus, Yeshua, he walks up on a plane and he says, and he just announces into the air that you have heard that it has been said, love your neighbor and to hate, and to loathe, and to detest your enemy. And yet I tell you, he says, agape your enemies. I mean, love them with the strongest, most vibrant love that there is in this galaxy. And pray for those who persecute you. Yes, Jesus came to bring color into our black and white world. And yet, this is also a loaded question because the common perception of the day was that love your neighbor only applies to people who we choose to like. And so we, we see this question 2,000 years later in the text, who is my neighbor? Once Jesus answers a loaded question by grabbing the gun and emptying all the bullets, all the bullets are hitting the ground, right? And he did this by scribbling in the dirt on one occasion. No, another time he diffuses a loaded question by asking for a coin, as we remember. And yet here he answers a loaded question with, uh, with yet another very creative way. When he answers his loaded question with story. This is where his parable of the Good Samaritan comes from. And I would say that with the exception of, of his parable of the prodigal son, this is his best-known parable that he ever told. Where even in this postmodern world, it's still known, it's a catchphrase in our own society, that you know, he or she was a good Samaritan. We even have many hospitals named Good Samaritan Hospital. And here's where this becomes a message. Is that it's one of Jesus' best-known parables, and yet, somehow, strangely, it's also one of the most misunderstood. And it is by far, somehow, the absolute least practiced in the real world. And it is the most resisted. If our takeaway from this parable of the Good Samaritan is that we should be nice to some people, is if we should go out and do one or two good deeds for the year and then report it on Instagram, then we have completely missed what this parable is really expressing to us. And that's because as nice as it is to do nice things for other people, if our understanding of the story is, is exclusively, we saw this guy whose car was broken down and we helped him for about three minutes into a parking lot or we let the guy 
who was behind this who had less stuff in line at the grocery store, um, a giant. I mean, if that's the only place where our minds go with this parable, then this story has fallen on extremely deaf ears. But if we truly apply what Jesus says in this parable and we adopt it into our our lives, oh man, it's going to hurt so bad. It's going to make our blood boil. It's going to hurt like hell. And that's because there's going to be this violent resistance within us to just exactly who Jesus is inviting us to look at, no longer as a them, but as an us. This is going to go against ways that we have operated our entire lives. This is going to require brand new eyes and a brand new mind and a brand new heart. This parable is not for the hard-hearted. And so I just want to ask us, are we ready to hear what Jesus says here? I mean, are we really ready to hear how Jesus answers this loaded question? Well, in verse 30, Jesus replies to him, and he begins explaining. He says that a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. And they stripped him, and they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. I find it so interesting that the setting for, for this parable is on a, on a street going to Jericho. Jericho, we know, is that city long ago where the walls came a-tumbling down, right? Well, what is really appealing about this specific parable is that it gives us eyes with which to identify that there are all kinds of walls within us, racial walls perhaps, political walls, I mean, all kinds of walls that might be within us that are a deterrent of us loving everybody who we see. And yet, if we do what Jesus says here, there are, there are going to be walls within us that will be a tumbling down within us. And something else about this road Jesus mentions here, this was an actual road in real life, going to Jericho, a road that still exists, by the way, about 20 miles in diameter, very steep downhill incline, full of caves and crevices. And in the first century, this would be the perfect place if you were a robber, where you could just hide out and just wait for anybody to come and to start attacking them. This happened all the time, evidently. And so this makes sense to everybody who, who's hearing this story for the first time. Oh yeah, I know exactly what road that is. And, and I've heard about many people being attacked before. And so he mentions a man who has been beaten, and he's half dead out, out there in the street by himself. But this man is in luck because here comes a man right now, and oh my goodness, it is a priest from the temple of Jerusalem. If anyone knew that they were to show loving kindness to their neighbor, it, it would be this guy. I mean, just look at this guy. He... As a priest, he made sacrifices in the temple. He would minister to other people. This is an extremely important religious figure. And once again, what what Jesus is depicting here is absolutely lifelike and accurate because priests would have walked this road every single day. Jesus' story makes all the sense in the world. And notice verse 31. After he says that a priest was going down on that road and sees him, he passed, notice he says that he passed him by on the other side. He sees him, 
He notices him, but he just keeps walking. He just looks the other way. Now, it could be that he's doing this out of fear, that, that I don't want to be attacked next. I need to get on home right now. Maybe it is because as a priest, if you made any kind of contact with a dead body, you know, as this guy looks like he's dead, if you make any kind of contact with a dead body, guess what? You are now unclean yourself. And you cannot really do the um, work of the priest until you have been no longer unclean. And he knows that if he goes over there and makes contact with what appears to be a dead body, that's going to put his entire life on hold. It's going to be this huge, gargantuan inconvenience to him where he will then have to turn around walk all the way back to Jerusalem and now make himself clean once again. I mean, this would have been a huge hassle for him. And so what does he do? You know, he does the Allen Iverson in, in the NBA Finals where he just he stomps over him and he just keeps walking on his way as if nothing had happened. And you know, a lot of times we think of church as Sunday morning as attendance charts, as three songs and a prayer. But what Jesus is inviting us to is this. What, because what matters more than anything is, is exactly how this lawyer has answered the question, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as your own self. And as I have noticed in the world, there are, are some of them who are in prison. There are many others of them who are homeless, living in the streets. There are others of them who are sick. There are more who are angels in disguise, walking our highways and byways. And then there are guys just like this. Guys who are naked strangers, who need to be taken in. And so this priest just, you know, he walks on by and, and he goes home, I guess. And yet this guy's in luck once again because here comes another guy. Jesus is describing him as a Levite. Now, Levites were, were pretty much the, the assistants of the priest, but he's another religious man and figure in the temple. He's a Levite. And yet he too walks by on the other side and he goes on his merry little way. Well, okay, Jesus, we know exactly what you're about to say. It's so predictable, no offense. We know that the very next person who walks up is going to be an even higher ranking man in religiosity. It might be a Pharisee, it might be a scribe, it might be the high priest himself. And he will be the one who will have compassion on him. Well, this is where this lawyer's blood pressure is about to hit the roof. Here's where this really starts becoming a story. Well, in verse 33, the first three words out of Jesus' mouth would have made this guy jerk his head up and have a whiplash, perhaps. When Jesus says, but a Samaritan, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. We hear that word and we think it's just a nice, random individual. 
But what Jesus is describing to this lawyer, as well as anyone else with an earshot, is their most hated enemy. Jesus is saying that of all people, Jesus is making their most despised enemy the hero of his story. This is his protagonist. And it's not that Jews hated anyone who was a Samaritan. That's not true at all. Jews had detested. Jews spat on the ground that a Samaritan walked upon. Samaritans, as we know, were not exactly completely Jewish. They, were, they had intermarried long ago with Gentiles. And so if you're really the average Jew living in this time, you would look at them as a half-breed at mutt, more, more or less. And so you would shun these people. You had nothing to do with the Samaritan. And we see this all throughout history. What jumps out of my mind also is that as the temple is being rebuilt, many Samaritans built their own rival temple, not in Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. And they said to anyone who would listen, this is the true house of the Lord, not that one in Jerusalem. And so the animosity, it continues to, to mount and mount. You can read Nehemiah and see Samaritans jeering Israelites about rebuilding walls in the city. I mean, they absolutely revile and detest each other. It is a mutual hatred. They look at, at anyone who is Samaritan and they say, not only is that not my neighbor, but they're not human. That's not a man. That is a dog, an animal, the enemy. That is not one of us. He is one of them. And we have nothing to do with each other. And yet notice in the text how all three of these men saw a man who was dying and, and who was hurting all by himself. And yet when the, this Samaritan sees him, something very different happens. Jesus said that he felt compassion. And there's nothing that breaks my heart more in the modern church than seeing Christians who seem to be fundamentally incapable of feeling compassion or empathy for, for others. I admire this Samaritan so much because rather than sprinting away from this man as his own religious individuals had, this guy sprints to this guy and he puts his life on hold. Notice he says that he puts him on his own donkey. He buys him a room at the inn. He stays with him as long as he possibly can. My friends, this is not the story of somebody who did a nice little deed for the year. This guy is putting his entire life on hold. Where as soon as he sees him, his life ceases to be about he himself. And now his whole life is revolving around this complete and utter stranger who happens to be his embittered enemy, notice. Let's notice that it is costing him his own personal time. He's spending money. But most incredible of all, he, a Samaritan, might be even risking his life walking into enemy territory with this half-dead Jew. What is any Jewish person going to see as a Samaritan is, is dragging a half-dead Jew into Jewish territory? What did you do to this guy? I mean, he's putting his life in jeopardy for an enemy. 
You see, this is not doing a nice, cutesy little deed. This is lavish, sacrificial compassion. This is lavish, sacrificial love. Where the Levite and the priest looked at this guy and they said, I don't have time to mess with that. But when this man who's a Samaritan looks at the guy who's laying there half dead, it's as if he's looking at his grandmother laying there half dead in the street. I've got to help this guy out. And so he stays with him all night long. He's taking care of him. And it's not that he goes just, 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 just one extra mile. This guy is going the third, the fourth, and the fifth mile so that he can love his neighbor as himself. Well, according to archaeology, it's been said that it would cost, if you wanted to actually stay in an inn in this specific place at this specific time, it would be something like one thirty-second of a denarius. Well, as Jesus speaks, he mentions a couple of coins that he hands him. Now, if this was anywhere near how much it actually cost for, for any room at an inn in this time, this guy is spending an upwards to actually two months for this guy to, to stay at this inn. It would be like us saying that, that, I've, that I've given you all of my, my um, cash. Here's my debit card, okay? Here's my credit card. Let's get him as many nights in this inn as we possibly can. My question is, who does this? I mean, who would do this for some random enemy who you've never seen in your life? There's no one on that road who can see, who can say, wow, what a nice guy he is. But he's doing this purely from the kindness and the overflow of his heart. He's putting himself in a dangerous place and situation. And yet all he cares about is this guy needs help or he's going to die. And so he comes to his rescue. Well, the religious leader's question was, who is my neighbor? The religious leader's question was, what's going to happen to me if I stoop down and I help this guy? And yet, the, really, the question that the Samaritan asks is the opposite. Rather than, than asking himself, what's in it for me? What's going to happen to me? His question is, what's going to happen to him if I do not show him God's love and compassion? I mean, this is not for the hard-hearted, as I said a moment ago. This is loving your neighbor as yourself because we only know how to love our own selves this way. See, the priest and the Levite in the story saw him as, as nothing but an inconvenience. But the Samaritan sees him as a co-human being and as his neighbor. And having spent a year in China... I know for a fact that if Jesus had told the story in Beijing instead of there, Jesus would have said, but a Japanese officer felt compassion. I was amazed to learn when we were there that in, in most Chinese homes, that one of the very first things that, that your mom and dad instill in your heart at a very young age is to hate anybody who's Japanese. In Beijing, they, they actually have an anti-Japanese museum. And I read a news article about this 15-year-old girl who left that museum saying that, that after seeing this, I hate Japanese people more than ever. 
Well, we would ask the question, why did the Chinese hate them so much? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it's almost entirely because of what is known as, as the rape of Nanjing. By far the worst atrocity that has ever happened on the face of this earth, aside from the cross. And I don't have to get into these details because they are grisly details. But for the sake of us really owning and grasping this parable, I'm going to actually give some details. If you have ears that are sensitive, I encourage you to, to um, go out in the lobby for, for maybe just 90 seconds. In 1937, as Japan captures Nanjing, in the city of a million people, just six weeks later, Japanese troops had slaughtered and butchered 300,000 of them. Over 20,000 of them were, were women and children. And there are historical documented reports about elderly people being gang raped. There are eyewitness accounts of Japanese troops forcing families to commit incestuous acts. Fathers being forced to even rape their own daughters at gunpoint. And after they had to do these things, you know what they did to them? Then they would shoot them in the heads. And then they would mutilate their own bodies. And I stumbled upon a black and white image of one victim that was so traumatic that just seconds after I looked at it, I was throwing up in my office. This is why 80 years later, so many people who are Chinese hate and detest and despise and they spit on the ground that anybody who is Japanese would dare walk on. If they heard G Jesus making a Japanese officer the absolute hero of their story, that would have incited a riot in Beijing. What do you mean that he was the hero of the story? And yet what about us? How would this parable sound if Jesus stood in America in 2018 and he told the same story? Maybe it would be something like this, more or less. How a man was going down from Harrisburg to Westchester, and he was carjacked. He was laying half dead in the gutter. They sped away in his car, leaving him half dead. And then by chance, the, the minister of the Church of Christ in Westchester... He just happens to come to that red light. He looks over and he sees this guy dying alone in the gutter. He looks the other way and he speeds right through the green light as it changes. Likewise, an elder from, from a Methodist church also sees him. And then he speeds by. And yet then an illegal alien, or then a transgender person, or then a devout Muslim, jumps out of his car, puts him in his own car, has compassion on this man, takes him to the emergency room, has his wounds all bandaged up, gives the hospital his, his name, his address, and his credit card, and says, whatever it costs, I am going to pay for all of it. You see, I read this, and what confronts me is that I can say that I love you and that I love everybody in this world and that I love Jesus with all of my heart. I can say that until, you know, he actually comes back. But what matters is what we actually do 
in these unexpected situations that just fly up out of nowhere, where we have three seconds to respond, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And the first thought in our minds is, what's going to happen to me if I actually go through with this? I remember how James writes, but that we're that we are to actually prove ourselves doers of the word and not merely those who just exclusively hear. Well, Jesus asked this lawyer, which, which one of these three has proven to be a neighbor of the man who fell into robber's hands? And I wish I could have seen his face then. That's because now with the tables turned, with his back to the wall, even this, this, this lawyer who had the wolfish smile on his face, he has to acknowledge in front of all of these people that, that it was the one who showed him mercy. And I wish that Jesus had asked him a loaded question. And who was the one who showed mercy? It was the Samaritan? It was the guy who we hate? It was one of them? For a long time, I used to think of the Great Commission as Matthew chapter 28. And it is the Great Commission. Go into all the world as we know, dot, dot, dot. And yet that's not the only Great Commission that there is. This is the other Great Commission, and really it is just as great. Go, he says at the very end of this, go, and now do the same. Go and do likewise. Now go and be the Samaritan, he says. Man, what a message for these people. What a message for us. And now go and be the Japanese officer. And now go and be the illegal immigrant who had compassion. Yeah, but David, these aren't actual people. This is just a story Jesus is telling that have fictitious people. This is just a comic strip. This is just a cartoon, David. So it really doesn't count. Well, this is a fictitious story that has non, non-existing um, characters in it. But this is really why this is the absolute most important part of this parable. I think it was about a year ago where the number one movie was, was called Beauty and the Beast. There were a lot of people who were about my age or even younger who were very ecstatic about this because when we were kids growing up, that movie was just a cartoon. But this was significant, though, because now the cartoon had come to real life. And it was being played by, by you know, real, actual people. When Jesus says, now go and do the same, he's telling this lawyer, he's telling this church, he's telling you, and he's telling me. And now go and bring the cartoon to real life. He's saying, be the Samaritan who brings this story to the streets of this actual world and show this world what being a follower and what being a a son or a daughter of God is all about. And yet we rebel against this. Man, do we rebel against this. I have a friend whose name is Ken Cabertle. He is out in Ocala, Florida, and... And he spoke one morning at at a church, and he said that, well, he said a couple of words. Love ISIS. Love ISIS. And the guy who spoke the very next week, he gets up and he says, seriously, Ken, love ISIS? 
How am I supposed to, to look at these people, at these animals, and see nothing but our embittered enemy? Love ISIS. Yeah, right. Many years ago, I was speaking at, a, at another church, and I wore a pen right here. Everybody else had the American flag on, which is wonderful. I showed up to a worship service with the Afghan flag on, and I had one brother in that church who looked like he wanted to hit me. <laughs> why are you wearing that those are our enemies because after all our neighbors are people who look just like us who vote just like us who speak the same language as us who share our ethnicity who think the way that we think who have the same sexual orientation as we do who worship God exactly to the T just like we do and yet anyone who does not speak our language, anyone who does not vote the way that we do, anybody who does not worship exactly the same that we do, anybody who has a different skin pigmentation as us, those are not our neighbors. It's not even a person, it's just a, a, a them. It's an animal, and that's my enemy. Us is way up here. Them is way down here in the mud. And I'm not going anywhere near those guys. That ain't going to happen. And yet Jesus says, do you want to follow me? Anybody who wants to follow me, anybody who wants to come over here on this end of the sand, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, let us do good, especially those of the household of faith. And yet let us also remember how that verse begins, where it says, do good to all men especially those who are of the household of faith. But here's where it gets really hard for me. It doesn't always have to be a Muslim extremist who's blowing up Boston or in New York City. There are many other people who have done unimaginable harm to everybody in this room. I've hated people before in my life. I am not proud of it, but I have despised people before but anyone who has brought you harm, where your blood boils every time they come to your mind, I want you to, to envision their face in your mind right now. I want you to remember what they look like. I want you to remember what their name was. And now I want us to all hear Jesus asking us this, this exact same question, who is your neighbor? We hear Jesus saying, that person, that person, that's your neighbor. That is your brother. That is your sister. That is not one of them. That is one of you. Are we willing to be inconvenienced? Are we willing to put our lives on hold, rushing to the rescue of one of them? Would we be willing to do this if it were a man who had a Trump shirt on, who had a red hat that said, Make America Great Again, would we be willing to do this if it were the most flamboyantly homosexual person that we had ever laid our eyes upon? Would we be willing to do this if, if the individual lying in the gutter had a black beard and had a turban laying in the gutter? If our answer to that is no way, 
as my answer has been many times before, we need to take our rightful stand with this lawyer and to hear Jesus say, this is who your neighbor is. Love your neighbor as your own self. This is not doing a good deed. This is lavish compassion. And it's not always in the form of money either. Sometimes it's just lavish sacrifice with our time, with our energy. But regardless, it is extravagant. So I just want to ask us in closing, who, who are your Samaritans? I want to ask my own self, who are my Samaritans? And I just want to invite us to just a couple quick things. One is, whoever our Samaritans are, even if we just spend one minute a day, let us pray prayers about just those individuals who are our Samaritans. Let us pray for their richest blessing in this world. And yet, secondly, after we have done that, far more important, that we also pray for specific ways that, that we ourselves can bring peace and to show the love of Jesus in their lives. And that is by expecting those situations. Maybe if we yearn for these situations to come our way, these very hard, complicated matters of love and neighborhood and compassion, Maybe if we go around looking for them all day long, maybe they won't catch us off guard as much. I've learned that there is nothing more powerful than when God's people behave and operate in ways that actually sprint towards our, our others rather than sprinting as far away from them as we can. Who are your Samaritans? And now Jesus says to all of us, now go, go and do likewise. Bring the cartoon to real life. Be the Samaritans, be whoever it is who turns this world upside down with lavish compassion. I'd like to go to God in prayer as we, we enclose. Father, oh my goodness, your word, it, it hurts sometimes. We feel justified not liking certain people. And yet, if we want to be followers of yours, we, we've got to put that stuff to death. Father, please break down those, those walls and those, all of those barriers in our hearts. Help us to look into the faces of every single person in this world and to see the face of a brother and to see the face of a sister every single time. And we pray all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.